You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 will be in several different places today, but we'll start in Matthew chapter 24. So you can go ahead and turn there. We do have our sermon notes available. You can access the slides through our Google Drive folder. The link is available in your bulletin, so I encourage you to pull those up at some point. All right, so for the last two weeks, we've been talking from Revelation chapter 19, Marriage Supper of the Lamb, as well as the great feast of the birds that takes place towards the unbelievers at the end of that chapter. And so kind of looking back the last two weeks, our Summary sentences have been, those who fear and worship God alone through their daily acts are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, we talked about the, the good works that flow from someone who is truly a Christian, and those good works being a mark of somebody who is ultimately invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then last week, we said, will you become supper? So two weeks ago, are you invited to supper? Last week, will you become supper? Because at the end, when Jesus comes, we see kind of a devastation of the lost and the birds being invited to come and to eat um, the fruit of that, that war. It says, when Jesus returns, he will do so in glory and power with his followers to execute justice on all those who have rejected and opposed him. And so we talked about just the ramifications of what it looks like to be an unbeliever on the day that Jesus comes back. And so I left you... Last week with three application points, like what do we do with the end of chapter 19? I told you, first of all, we need to keep believing that the coming day of judgment is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus is true. We referenced Acts chapter 17, verse 31, where it says that the day of judgment is coming and God has assured us of that by raising Jesus from the dead. And so we we went kind of into a full-on discussion about why people leave the faith Remember, we talked about people being disappointed with how God has orchestrated their circumstances. People are disappointed with how other believers have treated them, or uh, they're simply disappointed with the Christian life in general, that it hasn't been everything that they hoped it would be. And I told you that while all those reasons are, are certainly understandable and certainly need to be addressed through discipleship, they are not reasons to leave the Christian faith, right? That we don't leave the Christian faith because we're disappointed in God and how he's allowed our circumstances to play out. We don't leave the Christian faith because of how other Christians treat us and how they um, act like hypocrites sometimes. You should fully expect that God is going to do things in your life different than how you would have chosen to have them done, right? So you're gonna be disappointed at time with your circumstances. You're gonna wish that things had turned out differently than they actually go in your life. So you should expect that. You should expect that other Christians are gonna be hypocrites at times. They're not gonna be loving. They're not gonna treat you the way that you think that you should be treated or how the Bible even says that they should be treating you, right? You should expect that at times the Christian life is going to be disappointing in the sense that it's not the type of life that we long for, right? All those things are told to us in scripture. People are going to let us down. Circumstances are not always going to be the way that we desire them to be. They're not reasons to leave the Christian faith. We only leave the Christian faith if the resurrection is proved to be uh, false. That's the only reason to leave. Because if Jesus is back from the dead, then Jesus is coming back to judge, according to Acts 17.31. And we want to make sure that we're on the right side of that coming. So keep believing. Number two, keep obeying. We said that when Jesus comes... His people come riding with him on white horses. And so we said the picture there is that those who ride with Jesus are engaging in the same battle and pursuing the same goals. And so that's, a, that's an opportunity for us to step back and say, is that true? Am I riding with Jesus in every aspect of my life right now? If Jesus was to mount a white horse as the lamb and start going, book of Revelation says his followers follow him wherever he goes. They obey him in everything that he says. And so it's a chance for us to step back and say, is there any area of my life where I'm riding in a different direction than where the lamb is going? Keep believing, keep obeying, and then keep loving, keep loving. Um, My cousin Ryan, who pastors in Noonan, asked me yesterday even, he said, man, as you've been working through Revelation, there's a lot of passages like Revelation 19 that just talk 
um, very dark about Jesus's return. He's like, how have you been handling that? Like, how do you, how do you find application in that for your people? And I told him, man, we talk a lot about how we don't need to seek vengeance ourselves because we're assured that Jesus is coming back to bring vengeance, right? So we keep loving people around us. Even when we can't seek vengeance, we don't despair about it. And even when we can, we simply don't because we can trust that Jesus is going to come and bring justice in all of the right ways, right? So we keep loving people. We keep loving our enemies, and we can do it and feel good about it because we know that God's going to punish sin when he comes back, and we don't have to worry about bringing vengeance today, all right? So today we, we look at the second coming overall to kind of wrap up chapter 19 to give us a point to come back to in the future in our sermon archives if we needed it to look at what the Bible has to say about the second coming. And so from a summary sentence standpoint, the second coming of Jesus is the ultimate hope for the believer as it brings resurrection, judgment, and cosmic renewal. And because it brings those things, it should lead us towards increased purity, right priorities, and enduring perseverance. We're going to see today that the second coming is the ultimate hope of the believer. And it's our ultimate hope because it brings resurrection, it brings judgment, and it brings cosmic renewal. Because it brings us those three things, it should lead us towards increased purity, right priorities, and enduring perseverance. For our kids, Jesus' return is our greatest hope and should motivate us to make good choices with our lives. I mean, there's an accountability aspect that comes with a belief that Jesus is coming back right? Like there's, a, there's an accountability piece there that because he's coming back, man, it has implications for how I should prepare. And it's only when we stop thinking about him coming back or we stop believing that he's coming back that we're really free to start acting in, in contrary ways to the ways that he's called us to live, right? So we're going to see a connection today that, that our choices for impurity are typically tied to either a forgetfulness or a lack of eagerness for Jesus to come back, okay? His return is the hope for us as the believer. Brings resurrection, judgment, cosmic renewal, which should result in increased purity, right priorities, and enduring perseverance. As you're continuing to write that down, just by way of introduction, the second coming is a focal point of the New Testament. I've shared this before, but one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament deals with the return of Jesus, we don't, we don't think about it that much, um, but, but, it, but it's true. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus. It's mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters in the New Testament. All right, so the, the New Testament is, is full of information about the second coming of Jesus. It's, it's, in, it's in every book of the Bible in the New Testament except for Galatians, 2nd and 3rd John, and Philemon. Every other New Testament book mentions it, right? So we can't just go to the book of Revelation to learn about the return of Jesus. It's all throughout the New Testament. Now, you'll remember we're differentiating between the second coming and the rapture, and we did a whole discussion back at the beginning of Revelation on the rapture and why I personally do not believe in two separate comings of Jesus in the future, right? The, the historical, traditional understanding of the rapture being that Jesus comes and takes believers at that time back to heaven with him. There's seven years of tribulation before Jesus comes back again called the second coming. And the reason it's called the second coming and not the third coming is because Jesus doesn't actually touch down on the earth in the belief surrounding the rapture, okay? So there's the belief out there that Jesus comes in the clouds only, Christians are brought to Jesus. He goes back with them to heaven for seven years. Antichrist shows up. Mark of the Beast shows up. Seven years of tribulation upon Israel and the, and the, uh, the remaining people here on this earth. Bunch of Israelites get saved. Then Jesus comes back at the end of seven years, and, and we call that the second coming. Okay? What I've tried to show you since we planted our church is that it's, it's all one thing. Jesus is coming back one more time, Right? He's coming back after the tribulation, after the Antichrist, after all those things. He's coming back one more time. Now, quiz time for you. I've given you three specific reasons why I believe that. I don't expect you to remember the the second and the third one. 
But I do expect you to remember the first one. What's the main reason that I've told you I do not believe in a rapture and hope that as you continue to study, you reach a point where you don't believe in a rapture, not because I've told you there's no rapture, but because you've seen this fact in Scripture too. What's the main reason I don't believe in a rapture? Yeah, Israel and the church are not separate peoples of God, right? To believe in a rapture, to believe in a rapture, good job, Jeremy, good job. (laughs) To believe in a rapture, you have to believe that Israel and the church are separate peoples of God. Now, you talk to people that believe in a rapture, and they probably don't even know that they're supposed to believe that, right? Like they've just read the Left Behind books. They've always been taught that in church, that there's a rapture and a second coming, and they're not going to be here for the tribulation. But at the core of the belief system for that, the reason people, be, reason people developed that system is because they believe the church and Israel are separate peoples of God, right? And so the church is kind of a parenthesis for what God is really doing through his chosen people, Israel. Like the church just kind of comes alongside and is kind of a, a sidekick to what God is doing with Israel. Whereas I think scripture is very clear in the New Testament that the Gentiles have been grafted in, Romans talks about this, right? Grafted into Israel and they have become together the people of God. Once you believe that Israel and the church are one people of God, there's no more need for a rapture. The rapture only exists, that belief system only exists because there's a belief that God is doing different things with the church than he's doing with Israel, okay? The other two reasons for why I don't believe in a rapture, one, I don't think there's anywhere really in the New Testament where the avoidance of tribulation is promised for the church overall, right? Instead, what you find is assurance that tribulation is gonna continue to come, be ready for trials, be ready for difficulties, There's no clear-cut promise in Scripture that says, when the great tribulation comes, don't worry because you won't be here, right? I also think the third reason is that when I read about the, the return of Jesus, and you've done that this morning, sharing passages with each other, there's really no clear way to know which one would be talking about the rapture and which one would not be talking about the rapture, right? They're talking about the same thing. All those things seem to say the very same things, Right? It's very hard to differentiate those passages and say, this one's talking about the rapture, this one's talking about the second coming. There's way too many similarities in all those passages for it to be two separate comings. But again, the main reason, the main reason, and this belief in the rapture is not that old. Or, or uh, yeah, it's, it's, fairly, it's a fairly new belief system, and it's based on Israel and the church being separate peoples of God. Okay? We don't believe that God's done with Israel here. Right? We don't believe that. We believe that God still has much in store for, for his chosen people. But whatever he has in store for them, he has in store for us too. We've been grafted into his plans for his people. Okay, Our understanding of the second coming is also going to shape our understanding of the millennial reign. When we get into Revelation chapter 20, that's the whole passage about the thousand-year reign of Jesus. I'm going to share with you next or in two weeks why I believe that thousand-year reign is happening right now and not something that happens in the future. One of my main reasons for believing that is when you read the end of Revelation chapter 19, there is no indication that anybody is left to even go into a millennial reign, right? Jesus comes back, people that are believers meet him in the air, and they get radically transformed bodies, and he says, I wipe out all the unbelievers, which means there's nobody left to go into a millennial reign. We'll talk more specifically about that in two weeks, okay? My spiritual maturity, and I want, you know, this is the last point of introduction, my spiritual maturity is directly tied to my understanding of Christ's return, okay? The more I understand about Jesus coming back, the more I grow in my spiritual maturity because the more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, the more they neglect Christian fellowship, the more they ignore their personal relationship with Christ, and the less they long for his return, okay? When we stop focusing, when we stop emphasizing the return of Jesus. And this is part of the reason why we planted this church. Because I told you, I grew up rarely hearing about the return of Jesus unless we were doing a study on the book of Revelation. I want it to be a constant theme here at Sovereign Hope because it's a constant theme through the New Testament. Jesus is coming back and we can't ever lose sight of that. When we lose sight of Jesus coming back, we start to enjoy the things of this world way too much. We lose sight of our priorities. We forget the fact that this stuff is passing away. When we stop thinking about Jesus coming back, we're tempted to neglect genuine Christian fellowship because there's not as much of a need for it because all through the New Testament, we're told to meet together regularly to stay true to the gospel because Jesus is coming back, right? We start to 
deprioritize some of those things. We stop growing in our personal relationship with Christ, the less we long for his return. When I'm growing in my anticipation of his return, I'm motivated to meet with other Christians and to be about the Lord's business. Let's talk about some key truths that I want you to remember about the second coming, then I'll give you some application points as we close out. Key truths about the Lord's return. Ten things that I think you need to always remember to keep a good, healthy perspective about the second coming. Number one, his return is absolutely certain. His return is absolutely certain. For our kids, he's definitely coming back. Matthew chapter 24, hopefully you're still there. In verse 30, we'll start in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We've talked about, we've talked about those signs before in Revelation. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Man, this is a a quick summary of what we are looking forward to, what we are hoping in, the fact that Jesus is definitely coming back. He's coming back after many signs have taken place to warn us and to prepare us for his coming. And when he comes, he is coming with his heavenly army and he will send his angels, he will send his forces to the ends of the earth to make sure that every believer is gathered to him for eternity. Nobody gets left out, nobody gets missed, nobody gets excluded that's a believer. His return is absolutely certain. We said this from Acts 17.31 earlier today. It's as certain as the resurrection is certain, right? If you don't question at all the resurrection of Jesus, you have no reason to question the return of Jesus. If you question the return of Jesus, you have every reason to question the resurrection of Jesus because God says they're linked together. He says, I promise you Jesus is coming back because I've shown it through his resurrection. He's been raised to come back, okay? His return is absolutely certain. But number two, his return is not to be predicted. But as the signs increase, our expectations should as well. His return is not to be predicted. Stay in there in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Mark chapter 13 is another passage that's relevant to this. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Man, I don't know about you, but like I, when I, when I hear people predicting the return of Jesus, like, hey, it's going to happen on this date. We've got proof of it. We've been studying the Bible um, and all the signs are lining up and, and we've discovered this. I mean, I immediately dismiss that being the day that Jesus is coming back. Like my first reaction is, man, did I miss something? Like, like what do these guys know that I don't know? And then immediately right after that, I'm brought back to these passages that says, man, even the angels don't know when Jesus is coming back. To think that somebody is in a study somewhere and, and, and you know, measuring the signs and looking at all this stuff and trying to figure out and predict, man, I just, I've gotten to the point where I just immediately dismiss that. And a lot of people get caught up in it and get very anxious about it and really begin to worry and wonder, which I think is also kind of weird that if somebody knew that Jesus was coming back, our our first response shouldn't be anxious and worry, right? Like we should be excited and eager over the fact that Jesus is coming because of what we know happens when he does come. 
But I think a lot of times we get a little anxious and, and, and um, worrisome just because it's like, man, is that really going to happen on that date? Like that seems so soon. But I think we can very quickly dismiss people that try to predict this simply because Jesus said, man, it's not going to be known. He doesn't say anywhere in here, nobody knows right now, but there's coming a guy down the road who's going to write a book and he's going to know exactly when Jesus is coming back. He's going to have special insight and special revelation that's going to tell him to tell everybody the exact date. There's nothing in scripture that hints that we are to expect that one day somebody will know the return of Jesus's time, right? It's not meant to be predicted. And so I kind of feel bad for those people that spend so much time trying to predict it because they are ultimately completely wasting their time, right? Because that's a math equation that never gets solved, right? Jesus says, you're not gonna know when I'm coming back, but he does give signs to increase our expectation about it. Now, we're gonna talk in a minute, so be thinking, what are some signs or what's some things that you think are supposed to happen before Jesus comes back? We have to keep in mind, so, so all through the New Testament, it's, it's, it's hard not to read a, a soonness to Jesus coming back, right? Like it just seems like everybody is expecting him to come at any moment. Doesn't seem like Jesus tries to deter that, right? Like, I mean, even in this passage, he's like, you guys need to stay awake. You need to stay awake. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. It could happen at any point. And it's been 2,000 years since he made those statements, right? And so it's like, man, is Jesus really coming back soon? I think I heard maybe Jeremy mentioned in, in uh, discussion groups this morning, like time works different for God, right? Like he's very clear about that, that, that he thinks about time differently than we think about it. Second um, Peter chapter three, eight and nine talks about the fact that a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. So we have to approach the, the certainty of Jesus' coming and his imminence of coming through the, the mindset of God and time being different for him, right? He doesn't think in time the way that we do which is why I think we have to be very careful about trying to take time literally in the book of Revelation, right? Because God's very clear, time works differently when it comes to him. Is he coming soon or not? Or are we waiting on certain signs that still have to happen? There's a lot of signs in scripture that that are told to us will happen before Jesus comes back. But I think we have to note the purpose of those signs. Let's look at Mark, we're in Mark 13, hopefully still verse five. I'm going to read these, and you tell me if you can discern the main reason why these signs are given, okay? Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. All right, we skip down to verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse one, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Here, Paul even says, like, Jesus doesn't come back until the man of lawlessness appears. But what seems to be the overarching purpose for why these signs are even given according to what Jesus and Paul are saying here? What's the consistent theme in those passages that I read to you for why I've even told you to be expecting these things? Yeah, because false teachers are going to come. He says, I'm giving you these signs to prevent you from being led astray about the second coming of Jesus. He says, I don't want you to be alarmed, and I don't want you to be deceived. And so I've therefore given you some signs to expect to kind of keep your theology in order about the second coming of Jesus. I haven't given you these things to predict exactly when I'm coming back. 
I've given you these things to help protect you from when people try to say Jesus has already come. Okay, so the purpose of the signs is to keep us from going astray. All right, let's talk about some of the things that we know Scripture says has to happen before Jesus can come back. What are some things that you know of for sure? And then we'll talk about if they've been fulfilled or not. War, rumors of wars, earthquakes are all kind of grouped together. What else? All right, sun becomes dark. All right, gospel has to be preached to all the nations. All right, Antichrist has to come, man of lawlessness. We just read about that. Here's the list that I have, and there may be more things, but these are kind of the ones that, that typically come up. The preaching of the gospel to all nations, we said that one. Wars, rumors of wars and earthquakes, we said that one. The great tribulation, Mark 13, 19 through 20 talks about this. False prophets working signs of deception. Uh, signs in the heavens, we talked about the sun becoming dark. The coming of the, the man of sin, the rebellion. Um, And then the salvation of Israel is talked about in Romans chapter 11, that Paul was anticipating a great salvation of Israel to come. Let's talk about if these things have already happened or not, right? The preaching of the gospel to all nations. Now, Mark 13, 10, Matthew 24, 12, Romans 15, 19 are all passages that say this has to happen, okay? But there's some evidence in Scripture that this, according to however God meant it, it could already be fulfilled. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. We'll start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here Paul is, is rejoicing over the, the people of Coloss and their salvation. And he says, man, the whole world is experiencing this right now. Now, is that accurate? Well, well it's, well, it's accurate in the way that Paul means it, right? Is it accurate in the sense that Native American Indians were becoming Christians at the time? Probably not. But, but in whatever ways Paul means here, he's saying the whole world is responding to the gospel right now. You jump down to... Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So in some aspects, 2,000 years ago, Paul is saying the gospel has gone forth. The gospel has, has gone to all creation. Now, we know today there are still people that have never heard of Jesus. The gospel has never come to their language or tongue. So I think there's some aspects where we could say, man, if Jesus shows up today, I'm not going to say, whoa, 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 there's still people that haven't heard about Jesus yet. I'm going to look at these passages and say, oh, you could have come 2,000 years ago, according to what you've said here through Paul, right? But I do think there's some truth to the fact that, man, Jesus hasn't come back yet because there are still some tribes and nations that haven't heard the gospel yet. But lest we grow concerned about the fact that, man, Revelation says people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are there worshiping Jesus. Let's don't discount the fact of the children that have died. And we've talked extensively when, when Lauren and I were going through our miscarriages as to why I believe our children are in heaven worshiping with Jesus right now, right? So we've already got people from every tribe, nation, and tongue in heaven worshiping Jesus right now if we take into account the children that have been lost, okay? So we're not technically having to wait for this to be fulfilled. I do still think there's probably greater fulfillment to come, but I have no problem saying that Jesus could come back today, that the gospel has gone forth, okay? Wars, rumors of wars, and earthquakes, man, I don't even think we have to go into the fact that that can be fulfilled already, right? Like there's wars, rumors of wars, and earthquakes all the time, right? So that's not something we're having to wait to happen. The Great Tribulation, Mark 13, We've talked extensively about how Revelation is very cyclical in its approach, right? We've talked about how the people who originally read Revelation, you'd have had a hard time convincing them that something far greater tribulation-wise was to come. They were being burned at the stake. They were being used as human torches. They were being killed for their faith constantly. Man, it was as bad as it could be in their minds at that time, and it's continued to be that way throughout the world in various places, at various times, under various governments, okay? So, I personally believe there's a greater tribulation to come. But again, Jesus shows up today. I'm not going to take issue with, with me thinking, man, where was the great tribulation at? 
right? Like there's plenty of believers that could line up and say, are you serious? Like we've been going through that for a long period of time, right? Um, false prophets working signs of deception. First John 2.18 tells us, man, you've heard about the Antichrist. Antichrists are already here. Antichrists are already here, right? So if, if, if Antichrists are already here, it's very possible that the Antichrist is already here and, and he's not gonna show up with a big sign that says I'm the Antichrist, right? We're gonna continually having false teachers, people who deceive and persecute. And so at some point, the Antichrist will be here. We may or may not know that he's the official one. Right, So we don't necessarily have to say that we're waiting on that to happen. Signs in the heavens, while I don't think this has happened yet, I think it could happen very quickly right before Jesus comes back. So, I mean, things could go dark, things could start changing very quickly, and Jesus could show up all in the matter of minutes. Coming of this uh, man of sin and rebellion, again, kind of talked about that too, that Antichrists are already here, could already be here now. The salvation of Israel, Romans 11. I do believe that God still has plans for Israel. I do still believe that many Jewish people will become Christians before Jesus comes back, but I have no indication in Scripture as to what that exactly looks like, right? Like, I'm not keeping track of how many Jewish people got saved yesterday. I have no idea. I have no idea. At some point, there are going to be a bunch of them that get saved. Is that all in one day? Is that all in one year? Is that all over the spread of a decade? I have no idea. I just know Paul says God's not done saving Jewish people yet. So I fully believe Jewish people got saved yesterday. Somewhere around the planet, they got exposed to the gospel and believed that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting on. And so they are certainly being included in the plans of God. I've yet to find anything in Scripture that forces me to say that Jesus can't come back today. But I do see a lot in Scripture that makes me believe he's probably not coming back today. That there's still things that are going to be fulfilled on a greater scale, a greater scheme than they have been already. So your options are kind of, he can't come at any time because these things have to happen, or he can come at any time because I believe in a rapture, which means I believe that Jesus can come, and then all this stuff can still be fulfilled on a greater scale before he comes again. Or you can say, he can come back because all these things have possibly been fulfilled, which is where I land, right? Like I would never say Jesus can't come back today because something hasn't happened. I think it's way too imminent in Scripture. He can come back at any, po- at any point. Right? He comes like a thief. He comes like the days of Noah. I think he can come back at any time. I'm just not sure that he is coming back very soon because I do think there's some things that still have to play out on a greater scale. But again, if he shows up today, I'm not going to take issue with it because I think everything that he says has to happen, we can make an argument that it has. Okay? But we need to be prepared, even if we think it's unlikely that he comes back. Like, I don't know where you guys landed in your discussion. Is he coming back in your lifetime or not? We need to all be prepared like he is, even if we think it's unlikely, right? Like, there's a lot of things that we do uh, as a precautionary thing, even though we think it's unlikely. Um, You know, we buckle up in our car, even though rarely do we know people that get in car wrecks, right? We take precaution because we say, even though it's unlikely, I'm going to make sure that I'm ready in case that happens. Right, you hear all the time, like you can't you can't fly in your third trimester of pregnancy. Can you fly in your second trimester? You can. So third trimester, even though it's highly unlikely that you're gonna have a baby at the beginning of your third trimester, like they just tell you don't do it just in case it happens. Right? So we we could say, Man, I don't think Jesus is coming back right now. I think there there's still some things that are gonna play out in a greater scheme than they have already. But man, we should never use that as a reason not to be absolutely prepared in case it's today. Be absolutely ready for today. All right, number three. His delay is designed for salvation, but many will doubt and ignore his promises to return. We should ignore those people. Second Peter chapter three is, is the passage where Peter talks about the scoffers and those who will doubt the return of Jesus. Second Peter chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up in your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? You know, they go on to give their reasons that, man, all these things have been happening and Jesus still hasn't come back. That's where he says in verse eight, do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So for our kids, what we're seeing here is that he's not delaying his, his return except for the fact that he's, he's wanting more people to get saved, right? Like he wants everyone that's going to get saved to get saved before he comes back. Down in verse 15. Count the patience of your Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, the simple fact here that Peter says false teachers are going to come about the second coming, man, it demands that we be ready for this, and it demands that we have a good understanding of what the Bible has to say. And you can't just dismiss this and say, you know, we don't have time to study the book of Revelation, or it's too confusing, it's too hard, and it's not that big a deal, because the whole New Testament talks about Jesus coming back. And again, as we've already seen, Jesus says, man, false teachers are coming, they are going to try to trick you, they're going to try to deceive you, they're going to try to confuse you. And a lot of their confusion is tied around eschatology. It's tied around eschatology. So it demands that we put in our work and know what scripture has to say. Ignore these false teachers. Number four, his return will be personal and visible. For our kids, we will see Jesus when he comes. It's personable and visible. Acts 1.11, it's where Jesus leaves his disciples and the angel says, look, he's coming back in the exact same way. He's coming back in that glorified body. He's coming back where he will be visible and seen. Revelation 1-7, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You say, well, who doesn't believe this? The Jehovah's Witness don't believe this, right? They believe he already came back in 1914, but came back in an invisible way. Like, I, can't, I can't believe Jehovah's Witness theology because it completely contradicts what Jesus said about his second coming, right? That everybody's going to know about it, right? You know, Jehovah's Witness are the only people that believe in 1914 that something special happened with Jesus coming back. They believe he came back in an invisible way. Scripture is very clear. It will be visible. People will know about it. It's not going to be hidden. Number five, his return can be understood enough to extend encouragement to believers, for our kids, we know enough to be encouraged. Is it super confusing when we look at these passages sometimes? Yes. Is it super confusing sometimes to know exactly what's being talked about in the book of Revelation? Absolutely. But there is enough here. There's enough knowledge for us to not be led astray and for us to be highly encouraged. Listen to the commonality of encouragement in these passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's nothing there about when this happens. There's nothing there that describes what our glorified bodies are like, what we look like, how old are we when we get them. But there's enough there for verse 18 that says, Therefore encourage one another with these words. Doesn't matter if we don't know what the glorified body is actually like. Doesn't matter if we don't know when Jesus is coming back. The fact that he's coming back, the fact that we are reunited with believers that die, they come back with him, that right there is enough for the encouragement of verse 18. Same is true in chapter 5, verse 4. Um, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul says, I've given you enough information 
to encourage each other. Same we can find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 25. We hold fast together. We encourage one another because what we know about Jesus coming back. Number six, his return promises resurrection to all. His return promises resurrection to all. John chapter five, verse 28. For our kids, we will be resurrected when he returns, when he comes. John chapter five, verse 28. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a great resurrection that's coming. Now, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. To be someone who believes in a premillennial return of Jesus, meaning Jesus comes back and then there's a thousand year reign, you have to believe that only believers are resurrected when Jesus comes back and then a thousand years later, unbelievers get resurrected right? A lot of people that believe in a premillennial view don't realize that that's what they believe. And I had a great idea this week that it would be super helpful to have like a website that you could go to. And that website would ask you questions or just give you statements. And you say, yes, I believe that. No, I don't believe that. And then after a series of questions, it tells you what you really believe if we're talking about a title. You know, like at the end of it, it would say, you're a premillennialist, or you're an amillennialist, or you're this, or you're that. Because sometimes we label ourselves as certain things, and we don't even realize what that actually means, right? To be a premillennialist, believers and unbelievers aren't resurrected at the same time. There's a thousand-year gap. I mean, you don't see a thousand-year gap in John chapter 5 when it says, Jesus comes back, There's an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of judgment. You would never read that and say, probably about a thousand years between those two, right? Like you just just don't read that. You see that happening at the same time, right? Number seven, his return marks the end of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You skip down to verse 50. We see when that happens. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, to to look forward to a day that when Jesus returns, we will never have to worry about death again. We'll never have loved ones that we're having to pray for for their sickness because it may lead to their death. We'll never have to worry about losing a loved one too early. Man, death just gets stopped. It gets put to an end. It gets defeated. His return marks the end of death. Number eight, his return brings judgment upon unbelievers and commendation upon believers. For our kids, he will judge when he comes. That's a good thing for believers. Acts 17, 31 is that promise about it. Because God raised him from the dead, he will send him back to judge one day. Number nine, his return has global ramifications. For our kids, he will fix the world when he comes. Romans chapter 8, it's not just us that's waiting for the resurrection for the return of Jesus. It's the whole world. Revelation, uh, Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One of my colleagues at Trinity is always asking me, why, don't, why, why can't you open your mind up to an old earth belief system? Why can't you open up your mind to believe that, that God may have created things millions of years ago, right? Millions of years ago, and it doesn't necessarily mean evolution has to be a part of it. God was in control of everything. Why can't you have a creationist perspective about the age of the earth? And I always bring him to Romans chapter eight. I said, man, I can't reconcile the fact that there would be death before Adam and Eve ever lived. 
Because Romans chapter 8 says that the, that the creation of the world is groaning because of sin and that there's, there's destruction and decay that's part of creation that wasn't there before sin. And so you look at the fossil record and people try to use the fossil record to say that, man, animals were here for far longer, millions of years before Adam and Eve, and you have to have this death and decay, and it, it does not mesh with what Scripture has to say about death and decay. That creation is waiting for Jesus to come back and put an end to sin and death because it's been subjected to this, not by its choosing, not by its choosing. It's been subjected to this, and it can't wait to get out of it. To think that it's been in death and decay state for years, millions of years before Adam and Eve ever showed up, just doesn't really mesh with what Romans chapter 8 has to say. Second Peter chapter 3 is another passage that we've already looked at a little bit, but it talks about the, the renewal of the earth that is coming when Jesus comes back. Number 10, his return will inaugurate his never-ending reign, a reign that will be minus sin, sorrow, and suffering. Those things will be done away with according to Revelation 21, verse 4. All right, so these are 10 facts, 10 true things to believe about the Lord's return. Things that I want you to remember, things that new believers need to know about, things that we can encourage each other with. But now I want to hit real quick an application-type outline for us to take with us as we leave today. So it's not just facts-based learning today. It's very application, life-changing driven. All right? So let's look at number one, be challenged in your purity. There's a lot of facts about the second coming that are there in Scripture for us, but there's a lot of life-changing application that it's tied to. First, we need to be challenged in our purity. Number one, connect your lack of purity with your lack of belief that he is coming. Look what Titus chapter 2 has to say. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, so it says that the grace of God is a beard, bringing salvation for all people. That's Jesus's first coming, right? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, First John tells us. He came, the grace of God appears, bringing salvation for all people, and because he came, he's now training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 15, declare these things means teach these things to other people. Teach them that their purity is directly tied to their belief that Jesus is coming back. It's directly tied to your understanding of God's purposes in sending Jesus the first time and the second time. We have to connect. When we make sinful, impure choices, what we are saying practically is that I don't believe Jesus is coming back. I don't believe Jesus is coming back because the Bible says that if I believe he's coming back, I will renounce these things. I will live a self-controlled, upright life because I'm waiting for him. He's my blessed hope. I'm waiting for him to appear to redeem me completely from these things. Number two, connect your lack of eagerness for his coming with your lack of purity. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Then you jump to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And the common theme here is that Jesus is coming back for people that want him to come back. 
who are living like they want him to come back. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Man, all that is tied to what he had just said about Jesus is coming back, and we shouldn't shrink away from that. We shouldn't cower in fear about him coming back. We should be rejoicing. We should be running to that day. Right? We should be excited and eager for him to come back. Number three, connect your, con- your future condition with your current, current pursuit of holiness. He says in that passage that we just read that when he comes back, we will be like him. Verse three, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says, if you're hoping for Jesus to come back and you're hoping to be free from sin one day, that ought to be what your life looks like today. It should be actively trying to free yourself from, from sin, pursuing righteousness. Our lack of purity is tied to a lack of belief about him coming back. We need to, we need to challenge ourselves with that. Number two, be mindful of your priorities. Be mindful of your priorities. Number one, do not love a world that is under the evil one's sway. See, when we forget, when, not that we forget necessarily, but when we don't stay reminded about Jesus coming back, it's very easy to fall in love with the things of this world. And we need to remind ourselves that the world in its current state, verse 19 of chapter 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Man, don't fall in love with a world that's under the evil one's sway. Right? Like there's a greater world that's coming. Jesus is going to come and establish a reign where there's no sin, no sorrow, no suffering. That's the world we want to be in love with. That's the state that we want to be in love with. Don't overinvest in this world. It's under the evil one's sway. Number two, though, don't grow discouraged in the midst of trials either. Because there's going to be trials. And because Jesus is coming back, we don't have to grow discouraged about them. Blessed be the God and Father, 1 Peter 1 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, because that great salvation is coming, verse six, in this rejoice though now for a little while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It's temporary. Don't grow discouraged in your trials today. Know that something far greater is coming in the future. Rest comes later. Second Thessalonians 1 talks about that great rest that is coming for believers. And number three, be hopeful about your perseverance. Be hopeful about your perseverance. Number one, be encouraged as the signs unfold. And if we're not careful as Christians, we hear about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. We hear about the possibilities of Antichrist and marks of the beast and all these things coming. Man, it could be very discouraging and very scary, and we could, we could potentially fall into despair. But I love what Luke chapter 21 says in verse 28. Listen to this. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Man, it's, it's like God's just like screaming out and saying, look, when you start seeing bad stuff happening, there's gonna be all this temptation to despair and to be discouraged and to be worried and to be anxious. And he says, lift up your heads. 
be encouraged because the day is drawing near of your redemption. And it's, that's, that's completely contrary to what our flesh would say when we watch the news and we hear about scary things, right? Like everything inside of us wants to be afraid of that. It's supernatural to look at that and say, yes, Jesus is coming back soon. I don't have to be worried about these signs. He said, when I start seeing these things happen, as I see them intensify, know that we're getting closer. Number two, be prayerful for yourself and others. As we talk about perseverance, man, it's tied to the prayers of ourselves towards each other for ourselves. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He talks about Jesus coming back, the rest that comes, um, the judgment that comes. And then it says, verse 11, to this end, basically, for this day, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, it's a call for us to be in prayer for each other that we will persevere until that day. But then the, the confidence about praying for that is number three, that God has equipped us to persevere that we do make it to his second coming if we're Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Listen to this, verse 7. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that to everybody. He's saying that to all believers. You're not lacking in anything to persevere to the coming of Jesus, right? Like he's not saying your accountability group's not good enough, then you're off the hook. Or if your small group's not good enough, you're off the hook. Or if your pastor doesn't preach good enough sermons, you're off the hook. He says you're not lacking in anything to make it to the end. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, that should be a huge comfort to us that no matter where we find ourselves, we always have exactly enough gifting from God to persevere to the very end. Two points of application that I wanna leave you with and close with today. Number one, Evaluate your eagerness for Christ's return. Are your choices for purity and priorities causing you to persevere? And if you had to honestly evaluate, do you want Jesus to come back? Where do you kind of fall on a scale of eagerness? I remember growing up, there were things that I wanted Jesus to wait for me to enjoy before he came back, right? Like, I want to get a car. I want to get a family. Like, these are things that I've longed for almost to the detriment of longing for them more than Jesus, right? Like, Jesus, if you could just hold off until I'm 16 and I get a car, and if you could hold off until I'm married and have kids, then you can come, like, after I've enjoyed a lot of these things. Man, where's our eagerness at when it comes to Jesus coming back? And then the real practical thing that I want to leave us with today is begin praying regularly for Jesus to return in order to increase your awareness and eagerness of its imminence. You want to constantly remind yourself that Jesus is coming back? Start praying that he comes back every day. All right, Revelation twenty two twenty. we'll close with. He who testifies of these things says, surely I'm coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Imagine starting your every day, every day praying, Lord, come today. I've got things I've got to do today, but Lord, come today. I, I, I promise you, we will start to live with an eagerness that we probably don't have today if we start to pray every single day, Lord, let it be today. Lord, let it be today. It'll also shape how we handle today, right? Like if we're, if we're praying for it and we're, we're believing that God answers prayer and that someday he is coming, man, I got some things I got to do today because it may be today. I want to challenge you to start praying more regularly that Jesus would come as John prays here at the end of Revelation, which leads into our family worship questions. What are we looking forward to most when Jesus comes back? And then number two, take turns this week as a family praying throughout the week for Jesus to come back soon. Let's pray together and then Tyson will come and close us in one song. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, for the promises that you've extended to us. 
for the information about the second coming that's available to us. Father, we recognize there's still a lot of questions surrounding the return of Jesus, but we take comfort in the fact that you have given us enough to encourage us, to encourage us to make right choices with our lives, to seek purity in the things that we do, to set right priorities about the things that matter, realizing this world is passing away and does not deserve our investment. God, we're also thankful that you have given us enough to persevere to the very end. You've given us enough gifting to fight sin. We're not lacking in anything. We can renounce these things. We can pursue holiness. We can eagerly wait for you. We can not shrink back when you return. We can stand forth in confidence and rejoice and love your appearing. Increase our eagerness, Father. We pray that Jesus would come very soon. We pray that he would come today. And if that doesn't excite us, Lord, Help us to evaluate why the fact is that we're not excited about that. Help us to be reminded that those who are truly believers are looking forward to that great day. Increase our eagerness, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.